Please listen as Mike Sloan, our assistant pastor, brings the message that God has for us on this Lord's Day. If you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, uh, we'll start at verse 36, and uh, I know Alan and Barbara will be driving back tomorrow from Mississippi, so uh, we'll be glad to have them back, uh, but you're stuck with your assistant pastor for one more Sunday in the pulpit. Um, this passage before us in Luke 7, much like last week's passage, has been very convicting to me personally. Um, very hard words, very challenging words for, for us today, I think. Um, a passage that challenges us with the singular uh, love that we should have for Christ, that singular burning love. Um, and so it asks us today, is our love for Christ growing? Is it growing or is it, is it waning? Is it growing cold? Let's read, beginning at verse 36, we'll read through verse 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointments. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would feed us from it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now in this passage, there is a a certain tension. Do you feel the tension between the religious man, Simon, and this woman who is a 
reputable sinner. It grows from the moment she comes into this um, uh, meal. Uh, again, not necessarily an inappropriate thing. Uh, sometimes meals like this where a teacher was hosted, the public would be allowed to kind of come in and come around and listen to, to the discussion. So as she comes in, though, we notice the tension between her and Simon as Simon is immediately evaluating what she's doing as inappropriate and begins to uh, label her. This woman's a sinner, and, and therefore Christ, who is receiving this love from her, he can't be a prophet because he, he doesn't even know who this woman is. And, and if he did, he would surely have, have said, uh, you can't do this. I, I'm a holy man and you are not. And to, to allow that type of interaction would be uh, to render Jesus unclean, unfit for uh, going to the temple and participating in the sacrificial system. So we know, because at this point, if we've read up to this point in the story in Luke, we know something Simon doesn't. Simon's in the dark about who Jesus is. But at this point, we know that Jesus is the Lord. He is the divine Messiah sent to redeem to forgive sinners, to restore God's fallen creation. So Simon is the victim of some irony being played out in the story because we are in on something that he does not get. So there is this tension then between Simon and this woman. Now, this woman, we don't know much about her other than she has a reputation as a notorious sinner. We don't know what her offense, her offenses were. It really, I don't think is that important. Now, we know Simon is a Pharisee, and I think it's important to note that uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, we know that Pharisee means basically worse than Satan. And so, but that's not really how they were perceived, and that's not how Luke's original readers would have heard it. Um, the Pharisee was a, he was a lay leader, he was a religious person, uh, probably the, the best equivalent Today would be to say that this is about Simon the pastor or Simon the elder or Simon the lifelong Sunday school teacher, someone like that. That's how it should hit our ears. And so the passage centers on this irony of Simon, the religious, who doesn't get it, and this woman who everyone has marginalized and pushed to the side as unimportant. She gets it. She understands. And Simon needs to learn a lesson. Simon, the religious man, needs to learn this lesson from this woman. Now, in the story of the tortoise and the hare, we've all heard that story. If you look at the uh, just the, the outward appearance of things, who's going to win that race between the tortoise and the hare? We know it's got to be the, the hare, right? He's faster. He, he's going to win. Well, because we know that story so well, we know that that, that hare, he's a bum. We know he's lazy. We know he's overconfident. And so the irony of that story doesn't hit us so hard nowadays. Well, that's how this story is, because we know about the Pharisees, so many of us. The irony of this doesn't hit us quite as hard um, as it should. And so the challenge that the passage brings, the challenge to our cold hearts, the challenge to love Christ as this woman loves, is what you and I are called to. Are we more like Simon? Are we more like this woman? Do we see Christ as this woman sees him, as he truly is? So that's what we're going to look at, that he is the God of grace who forgives sinners. 
Now we're going to look at the contrast throughout this this passage, and we're going to start by looking at the contrast in love between Simon and the woman, contrast in their loves, their contrast in their faith, and then we'll look at the response of Christ to to both. So let's begin with, with Simon's love. Look in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, do you notice when the story is first begun, the details of Simon's lack of love and his lack of hospitality are omitted. And they're saved for later in the story to be put alongside for, I think, rhetorical effect to contrast with the over the extravagant love, the lavish love that the woman pours upon Christ to show and compare the two and the difference between the two. But as Jesus enters, his failings, Simon's failings, are not recounted. And, but look in verse 44 where they, where they are, and we're told what happened when Jesus came in and what Simon failed to do in verse 44. He says, I entered your house, in the middle of the verse, you gave me no water for my feet. That was basic hospitality, which is a biblical command. Um, we read that from Romans 12 last week. It's a biblical command to show hospitality. And those of you who are showing hospitality in our church, there are many of you, I encourage you, that's a biblical command. The Lord sees that and he's pleased. So he gave no water, but she has wet my feet with her tears. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, no greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And so do you see the great contrast in the lack of love that Simon has and the lack of hospitality, his failing in this point? Now, you might say, well, uh, Simon's problem is not, uh, it's just a problem of degree. Look at verse 47. Based on that parable, well, he's the one that was forgiven of 50, and so his love is not quite as great. And so in verse 47, the assessment of Jesus, of Simon, is, uh, well, he's forgiven little, so he loves little. But I think, obviously, the parable applies directly to the woman, that because of her great uh, debt of what she's been forgiven, she loves greatly, I think the second part of that is, is a general statement. The one who's forgiven little loves little. I don't think Simon even grasps, and I think that'll become plain, he doesn't even grasp his need for forgiveness. So it's not a problem of degree. The problem of, he doesn't even see that he has a debt. He doesn't see his sin. And so he draws a strong rebuke from Christ because Christ exposes with a very strong statement, these statements. You didn't even give me water. You gave me no greeting. He lays Simon bare and exposes his cold heart towards God. Which we read from Deuteronomy 6, the greatest commandment, our highest calling to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. Now, do Christ's words also speak to us? And I think they do. This is a danger for Christians, as we also saw in the the New Testament reading. There is a danger for us that we would let our love for Christ grow cold, that we would leave our first love. And this passage, as we've seen with Simon, our lack of love for God should draw rebuke from him. It's not only that our lack of love is appalling, it's also culpable. 
there was a man named Henry who over 300 years ago wrote a letter to a friend in need. And he was, he was reminding his friend of the nature of true religion and what Christianity is all about. And he was saying it's about love for Christ because he has loved us. And he, he made this very profound statement. He said, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. And our love is to be given to nothing, and there's nothing higher, nothing more worthy of love than Christ. That is our highest calling. And so our lack of love for him is appalling. It's also culpable. Um, I love a lot of things. We all love things. Certain things are families. Uh, I, love, I love cinnamon toast. I love football. I love lots of things. But to elevate any of those above Christ is the most serious idolatry. David Brainerd, a, a saintly man, if ever there was one, said it this way. I deserve hell every day for not loving my Lord more. So our lack of love is appalling, but it's also culpable. So here in our fellowship at Old Peachtree, members, we are members of of the visible church, are we not? Just like Simon was. And do we truly love Christ is the challenge that Christ has for us this morning. We can do many good things. And just like Simon, we can give our disciplined attention and work out many, many areas of our faith. And still fail on the most important point, to give our love to Christ. So let's be aware of that danger. What is the defining characteristic of my life and of your life? Is it our love for Christ? Now contrast this love, this lack of love that Simon showed with the woman's love. In verse 44, notice again, it's, it's I think for rhetorical effect, it's the turning of Christ. Christ turns. We're to pay attention. He turns toward the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water. Now, what did she do? Did she give him water? She didn't even do that. She went beyond that. At each point, she didn't just give water. She wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He says to Simon, you gave me no kiss. Did she greet him? She even kissed his feet. She's not ceased to kiss my feet, he says, Jesus says. In verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she even went beyond that. She went beyond and she anointed my feet with this ointment, this expensive ointment. Now look at the evaluation. The contrast in her love draws a different response from Christ. His evaluation in verse 47 is then... She loved much. Strong commendation. Wouldn't you hear Christ, wouldn't you love to hear Christ say that about your love? You love me much. And so the ironic uh, lesson learning begins. Simon, will you learn your lesson from this woman? So what love, what type of love does Christ commend to you and to me? If we've been convicted of our lack of love and what type of love do we need to show? What type of love are we to demonstrate following the example of this woman? Well, notice, first of all, that she gave her time. 
in verse 37, she hears that Christ is going to this man's house. And she, when she heard, she goes. She takes the time to go be with Christ, to express her love. I'm so convicted. When was the last time I carved out time just to sit and to pray to my Lord, to express my love to him? Are we regularly doing that? Are we carving out time to praise him? Or have our prayers become just lists of things that we request? And again, that's important. But do we carve out time simply to express our love, to praise him for all the things that he has done for us? So it's the first of all, it's it's time. We do that here in worship, but we should do that also on our own in our families. The second thing, apart from after time, would be the humility. Look at the humility of her service that characterizes her love. She's at his feet. She is washing his feet. Now, how are we going to fulfill this now? Because Jesus, uh, his glorified body, is at the right hand of the Father. Well, do you remember several weeks ago when Alan preached about the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25? And it talks about how as we serve one another as we serve the least of our brothers by visiting them when they're sick, by serving their needs, giving them food, uh, helping them when they are in need. As we do that, we are doing it to Christ. We are doing it to him. And Christ says that is service rendered unto me. So with humility, we are to continue, as this woman did, to wash each other's feet and serve each other in, in humble ways. I'd say after so the time, the humility, notice the deep reverence and honor that characterizes her love. It went beyond what was required. We've already seen that. And all that she did was driven by a strong desire to honor Christ for his greatness. And so all that she had, her emotions, her possessions, the, the ointment, all that she had was directed toward the honor of Christ. And I think the ointment, that's again an example. I don't think that's, that's something that we're necessarily literally required to do. It's an example of the type of lavishness that we are to give to Christ. And then finally, the, the final characteristic of this love is that it overcame difficulties. Notice that she is disdained, but she still goes. She is singled out. She is marginalized. There's a stigma associated with her past in, in the, the eyes of, of her uh, brothers and sisters. And yet she still goes. She overcomes that and shows Christ the honor he deserves. So her love is abundant. It's lavish and it contrasts greatly with Simon's. Now, underneath this love, what's the difference? I think underneath the difference in their love is a difference in their faith. So that's. Let's look at the contrast between their faith. First of all, let's see that Simon's faith was very much misplaced. First of all, Simon was wrong about Christ. Look at verse uh, 39. Well, notice when, when, because Christ is invited, there is at least some level at the beginning of uncertainty or neutrality on, on Simon's part. He at least invites him to a meal to hear him. But very quickly, it moves from any sort of neutrality to 
to basically evaluation and condemnation. So look at verse 39. Simon says, as soon as the woman comes in and begins to love Christ, uh, when he saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This type of conditional statement is called, it's called a contrary to fact conditional. It means Simon's not saying maybe this is the case and maybe it's not. It's clear. He's saying not this man might be a prophet. He's saying, I've decided this man is not a prophet. It's obvious to me. That's the judgment that Simon has passed. And in the verse, in the original, in 30, verse 39, this man, it's, it's emphatic. He has made up his mind. Jesus, you have been weighed and you've been found wanting, is what he basically says. Now, what, what are his reasons? He says, Jesus doesn't know who she is, first of all. And because if he's a prophet, he would he would know. And then secondly, if he knew, he would stay away from her. He would not let her presence defile him. So Jesus is not a prophet. Notice his confidence in his own ability, in his own powers of discernment. But notice in verse 40, Jesus answers Simon. Well, if you were paying attention, that's very odd. Jesus answers him. But Simon, if you were paying attention, Simon didn't say anything, did he? Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet. But Jesus answers his thoughts on the spot, proving that he is not just a prophet. He is more than a prophet. Secondly, what about Jesus' association with this sinful woman? According to the Pharisees, it would have rendered him unclean. Would Jesus really stay away from sinners? Now, again, because this irony being played out in the story, Simon is in the dark on this point. But we know there is a different explanation. And the different explanation is this. Christ, Jesus, is the Spirit-anointed Messiah, sent to redeem, sent to forgive sins, and to restore God's fallen creation. So look, turn back a few, a couple chapters to chapter 5 in Luke, where this is brought out clear, very clearly. In chapter 5 and verse 12, there's a story of Jesus' encounter with a man who was unclean, a leper, who had this skin disease and was unclean. So notice what happens. Verse 12 of chapter 5. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So how did, how did uncleanness work? Well, if you were unclean and you touched someone who was clean... What happened? The uncleanness flowed to the clean person, right? So that in this case, you were, you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Well, Christ reverses the flow because Christ is the divine Messiah. Because he is the Son of God, sent to restore and heal God's broken creation. When he touches something unclean, someone unclean, they become clean. The consequences of the fall roll back. And they evaporate. And so that's fundamental. There's another explanation. Skip down a few verses to verse 20. Same chapter. 
when Jesus encounters another man who needs healing, he's not unclean, but he is a sinner. Jesus, and when he saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's the answer, isn't it? Bingo. Jesus is God. Do you see? Jesus is the divine Messiah. His special task is to redeem not just the consequences of sin, but redeem sinners themselves. So Jesus is not defiled by the presence of sinners. He actually cleanses them and forgives them. And that's exactly what Jesus says in our passage. When he says to Simon, he says, I tell you. Jesus says, I declare on my own authority. I tell you, this woman, Simon, her sins are forgiven. So there's another explanation. Still in in chapter 5, look down a few more verses at verse 29. Levi, a known, again, a sinner, a tax collector, according to the Pharisees, Jesus is eating with him and other tax collectors. Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, do you see the theme? Who is Jesus? We know because we've read up to this point in the story. We know he has a mission as God's spirit anointed divine Messiah to push back all the consequences of the fall. Simon doesn't know he is wrong about Christ because he fails to see this truth. So Simon was wrong about Christ, but notice also that Simon was wrong about himself. You catch his moral superiority throughout the passage. He points out, well, she's a sinner. Obviously, he doesn't look at himself in that way. Aren't we called to see ourselves as sinners, though? Isn't that the fundamental doctrine of the faith? In the presence of a holy God, we're sinful. And so Simon says, I trust myself. My faith is in myself. My holiness, my purity, my belonging to the right peer group. The the Pharisees, we're the right group with the right outlook on everything. And I have great abilities of spiritual discernment. I can pass judgment on this prophet and tell you whether he is or not. My sin's not a problem. I've got enough righteousness. I've got enough points myself. Jesus points out to Simon in the parable, though, in verse 42, reminding him when neither could pay the debt, neither could pay Simon. No one can. He's trying to confront Simon with his own need for forgiveness. You see the magnitude of your own sin. This is a great theme throughout the Gospel of Luke, that those who are the the spiritual uh, have the spiritual pedigree. Those who have the positions of influence and leadership, they are proud and they refuse to repent when Christ appears on the scene and John the Baptist before him. Those who are humble, those who have great sin, the tax collectors, the sinners, those who are labeled and marginalized by those in authority, those are the ones who actually repent. And so there's a great reversal. And those who repent and trust in Christ are exalted by the Lord. 
Those who are proud realize and are told the points you're building with God, trying to win his approval, it's monopoly money. It's worthless. It doesn't have any value. And that's the testimony throughout Scripture. Striving for my own righteousness. It's worthless before God. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, Isaiah says, All of my righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And when Paul lists in Philippians uh, 3, he lists his qualification. He says, if anybody wants to attain righteousness before God, if I took a shot at it, uh, you know, look at all the things I've done, but it's all rubbish compared to Christ and his perfect righteousness. So Simon is, is actually shown, you know, Simon, you're not superior. Look at your sin. You failed. You showed me no love. Now contrast that with the woman's faith. She's weeping. And that's biblical code for she's sorry. She's showing sorrow for her sin. She's putting her faith not in herself. but She's looking to Christ. She knows she is worthless. Uh, she has no spiritual uh, points to give. And so she looks outside of herself to Christ. And in verse 50, it, it said, Christ says, look, your faith, your faith in me has saved you. You're saved through faith, not in what you've done. Now, her love is not the cause. And this is important to note in verse 47, because this is in our English. It's a little bit ambiguous when Christ says her many sin, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. Um, he's not saying the ground of her forgiveness is her love. Her love wins her forgiveness with me. That's not what he's saying. The four there is signifying the result. It's the evidence. And that's what her love is. The, the love that she shows is the evidence. And so again, the irony is, while Simon is blind to the, the central mission of Christ, this woman shows remarkable insight that this man is the savior of sinners. And I'm going to sit at his feet He is the one that's deserving of my love because he has forgiven me through faith. Now, what is the response of Christ in the end to these two people? We see that both responses reveal his grace. Look at the response to the the Pharisees. First of all, remember, again, as we read in chapter five, the charge given to Christ, his disciples throughout the gospel is you guys eat with sinners. You guys are are always doing that. But you can make the same case throughout Luke. Jesus eats with Pharisees. You could easily charge Jesus, man, Jesus, you're always eating with those self-righteous people. You're always staying around them. And you're always speaking gracious words to them. Because that is exactly what Jesus does to Simon. He calls him by name. He doesn't label him. He says, Simon, in verse 40, I have something to tell you. He tells him the truth. He confronts him with the reality of his need for grace. And this is a gracious word. So Christ is saying, even now, despite your lack of love, I'm ready to forgive you. You need to repent and put your faith in me. Beyond any rightful expectation, I am willing, even now, Simon, to forgive you. And so his response to Simon is full of grace. It's a challenge. Sure, it's a rebuke, but he takes the time to bother with self-righteous Simon. And he gives him what he desperately needs. And for us, too, he tells us, 
I have something to tell you. For us who can hear those words this morning, we need to hear that rebuke. We need to repent of our spiritual pride and our lack of love for the Lord. What is his response to the woman? Now, he doesn't gloss over her sin in any way. Verse 47, he says, look, her sins are many. There's no denying that. It's not sentimentalism. Jesus is not wishy-washy on sin. He knows full well, again, contrary to Simon's evaluation, he knows who she is. And in the passage, three different times it's pointed out she's a sinner. But also in the passage, three different times it's pointed out Christ is the forgiver of sins. And so if you know your sin like this woman, know that Jesus does not recoil in your presence. Know that you're not a second-class citizen in God's church. The statement that he tells her, your sins are forgiven, it's not superfluous. Even though at that point, because of the verse before, we know she's already a believer. Her sins are forgiven at that point. But he looks at her in verse 48, and he looks at and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. He gives her personal assurance. Why? Because we can all have doubts about this. And it is Christ's desire more and more to seal on our hearts without a doubt that we have been forgiven of our sins. And so if you have doubts that Christ could love someone like me, if you struggle with the depth of your sin and wonder about that, it is my duty and privilege to tell you as a minister of Christ, your sins are forgiven. And I tell you that on his behalf. This is his word. You might think, If he were just here, if I could just hear his words, these are his words to you and to me. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. It's not just a a, a greeting, a, a dismissal. Go in peace. It's full of theological significance. Go in peace with God. You have been reconciled fully to him, a holy God and a sinful person through me. So what happened next? Whatever became of Simon? We're not told what became of Simon. Luke leaves that question hanging in the air. And and he does it on purpose. Throughout Scripture, it's a common tool to then not show the response, to throw that decision to you and to me, to ask, what is our response? Are we going to repent of our sin? And the question of those present, who is this? That's left hanging as well. What do you and I say about this Christ? Is he a savior to sinners like you and me? What do we say? Is he the one who is worthy of all of our love? The same man, Henry, who wrote that letter to the friend in uh, spiritual need, reminded him of this. He said, nothing helps us love Christ like remembering the love that he has for us. So that's the key. Look at Christ. Do you see his divine mission? Do you see his grace? Do you see the grace even in his rebuke to you and to me to challenge us to love him above all? Let's pray. Lord, we uh, are, are unworthy of your love, and yet we are so grateful for what you've done for us in Christ. And we ask now that you would convict us where we need to be convicted and assure us where we need to be assured. And help us to more and more grow into our love for your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.